You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, folks. Hey, uh, today I'm, I'm really thrilled to be joined by Rusty George. Uh, Rusty and I connected with each other earlier uh, this year. I got to be on his podcast and uh, I've known of Rusty for, man, Rusty, I guess several years, uh, but just recently got to meet him and just really enjoyed the conversation we had. And uh, even though I, I was kind of the feature on his show, I just knew I wanted to have Rusty on my show because Rusty is is one of my favorite species of people in that he's a lead pastor. And he hasn't always been a lead pastor. Uh, right now, he serves at Real Life Church in Simi Valley. Uh, Rusty also serves as a leadership consultant. He he speaks actually all over the world. And he's written several books. And he just recently released this excellent book on prayer. And the reason I like it is because he's actually talking about, okay, what do you do after you pray? What do you do between you talking to God and God answering? So the book's called After Amen, What Do You Do When You're Waiting on God? Rusty, welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm a fan of your work. I'm a fan of the show, and I'm really grateful to be on. Excellent. Hey, let's start, before we get into your book, let's just talk about posturing during a pandemic, Mm. posturing during 2020. Um, What have been a couple of the unique challenges that you... Well, let me ask this first. How long have you been a lead pastor? Yeah, so I served as an associate pastor for nine years right out of college, and I had a great run there, loved it. But probably about year seven, I felt like, all right, uh, I'm ready to go do my own thing. Felt like God gifted me that way. Uh, Had a little bit of that discontent of, boy, if I was in charge, I'd do it this way kind of a thing, right? (laughs) Yeah. And God was gracious enough to, uh, to put me in this location in Southern California. And I've been here 17 years as a lead pastor. And uh, I remember talking to the lead pastor that I was under in uh, my previous role after I'd been a lead pastor for probably six months. And I just looked at him and said, man, I am so sorry. (laughs) And it was like I didn't have to say anything else. He knew that uh, when you're the, uh, you know, in the second chair, you got a lot of great ideas that probably aren't going to work. And he just looked at me and said, you never know until you're on the other side of the desk. And boy, he was right. So 17 years of highs and lows of uh, amazing things, awful things, and just trying to follow God through this crazy world of uh, not just COVID, but being a lead pastor. Yeah. Yeah. I So I've been in ministry 25 years and a lead pastor for uh, 15 of those. Mm-hmm. I, I was blown away by the, the difference in pressure between the associate chair and the lead chair. Hmm. What, what were maybe just two or three things that you faced when you made that leap? Well, I, I think the moment you take the role, there's a tremendous amount of adrenaline because you think, oh, now I'm in charge. Now I get to make the call. Um, we're going to do things the way I've always dreamed things could be done. And then you hit your head against the wall a few times and you realize, oh, that's why others don't do this. Or that's the price you pay if you do do this. And I think that's the biggest one because, yeah, you can do it, but there's going to be fallout over it. There's going to be a price you pay. Do you want to manage that kind of chaos for a while to get to what you think might be the end result? 
it's a whole lot more than just moving furniture around or changing the uh, order of worship. So those were some of the big things I learned. And, you know, just the weight of it. I think initially you think uh, of the offering. Uh, you know, <laughs> when you're an associate right. pastor, you never care about the offering. Uh, it doesn't right. matter. Uh, you can go out there and create a program, do it. If it bombs, okay, we try something else. But there's a, there's a price you pay uh, for things that don't work out because you've, you've put your energy into it, you've sold the vision, you've done the event or the new uh, strategy or the new campus or whatever it is, and then it bombed, and you feel the weight of that, you feel the loss of people that leave your church, um, you feel the, the, the kind of the pain of saying goodbye to people, and it's a little bit of that, well, and to your point of leadership anxiety, you really have to wrestle with where is your worth coming from? Because so much of your worth, especially for guys, is in their job. Yeah. And now your job is also your spiritual life. They kind of get woven together in ministry. And so you begin to wonder, okay, am I bad at pastoring or, or am I bad at being a follower of Jesus? And trying to separate those two is really hard. So, you know, it's a whole new, unique set of challenges. Yeah. I, yeah, I love the way you answered that. How many years were you in lead pastoring before you decided enough of this, I need to find a different way to do this job so I can thrive. I think for me, it was probably about a year. Okay. I think, um, I think a, a year is how long it took before I tried everything I thought I would do when I wasn't a lead pastor. So I, you know, had all these ideas and, uh, I wanted the reins. I wanted to make the shot, you know, and take the shot. And then after you do for a while, you begin to figure out, well, this isn't as easy. So I think it probably took me a year to figure out some of that and then realize, all right, I, I got to go about this differently. Um, it's more than me just doing the things I thought should be done. Now I've got to figure out how do I utilize a team? Uh, how do I manage chaos on my own leadership team? How do I manage chaos in my own personal you know, inner world? Uh, how do I balance work and home? How do I not think about this 24 mm. seven? Uh, how do I um, have moments of Sabbath? How do I, and I think one of the toughest things is it's one thing to be a lead pastor at a church you've known for a long time. You know, you've been an associate, then you become a lead pastor. When you go to a new church as the lead pastor, that's a different learning curve because you're trying to learn the staff. You're trying to learn the culture. Uh, everybody wants your time, but who need, who really deserves your time? Um, just because they're the loudest voice doesn't necessarily mean they're the voice you should listen to. So it's kind of learning who those people are in the church to pay attention to and, and what matters most. So um, I think it probably took me about a year. Yeah. One of the, one of the things you mentioned on that list was how do I turn it off 24 seven? How do I stop? Mm. Uh, what's a tool or two that has really helped you to keep the incessant thinking about it at bay? I heard a quote from, I think it was Rick Warren years ago that said, those that work with their hands relax with their minds, and those that work with their minds relax with their hands. So, so much of your day is spent just um, trying to make decisions. It's mental. It's exhausting. You come home and you think, boy, I sat around all day. It's hard to explain to your family. You know, <laughs> you, you know, you sat all day, but you're exhausted. How is that? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it was because of the mental stress. So what could I do with my hands? Uh, I started cooking dinner. Um, I started cooking with my daughter, uh, who likes to cook. We'd watch cooking shows, and we would, you know, try those things together. I started refinishing furniture in the garage with my wife. She likes that kind of thing, and so we would do, uh, you know, a dresser together, or she would do it, and I, I would, you know, 
fix it up or whatever from whatever we found on the side of the road. And it became something that um, was tangible and physical. I heard somebody say one time, I know why Jesus was a carpenter, because at least he could see work being done. Uh, <laughs> and I think for a lot of us, we, we, we work so hard to try to push the ball down the field and we never see any progress. And then it comes all at once. And when you come home and you make dinner or you rebuild a, d- a dresser or uh, you fix something in the house, even if you're bad at it, um, I think it allows you to do something besides what you're used to. Yeah, that's. I think that's really helpful. My experience is a lot of my listeners, most of my listeners are in some kind of church leadership. They just don't believe they should take care of themselves and find these outlets like this. I think it's really helpful just to hear from leaders. What do you do and, and how does it help? Because I think most of us carry some kind of low-level guilt that we should be doing more, we should be doing it better. But that counterintuitive idea that cooking dinner is actually a really good soul care I love that. Yeah, and I think that, and I lived with that for a long time. I, I remember thinking, well, I could, I could stay at the office another hour and maybe write a better message, maybe counsel somebody and help save their marriage, or I could go home and sit on the couch and watch American Idol. Well, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound like it's much of a uh, decision. You stay and you do the work. But when I recognize that if I stay another hour, or I, pro- or I work on this another hour, I'm probably already at the end of my tank for the day anyway. The work's going to be counterproductive. Or I could go home and I could refill the tank. Uh, and I think that's the mental game pastors have to have to kind of play, is you're not just lounging for lounging's sake. You're not just cooking dinner for uh, some kind of hobby. You are turning it off so that when you turn it back on, it's full again. And you have something to, to kind of get out of the spigot, so to speak so that your mornings are more energetic and you get more done in a shorter amount of time. And so in a strange way, the head game you play with yourself is, okay, I'll rest so I know I can work better. Yeah, yeah, that's good, yeah. All right, so let's talk 2020. You know, by the time 2020 showed up, you were already an experienced pastor. Not that you don't have more to learn, of course, but you've, you've been doing it a while. What are a couple of the unique challenges that have surprised you this year? I think I overestimated how much I value routine. Uh, I think based upon my Myers-Briggs and my Enneagram and all of those personality types, the things that I had leaned on to give me clarity and energy and even made me good were some of these things of plan way ahead. Um, write your message six weeks out. You know, have all your notes turned in so everybody's ready. And, you know, just that planning thing and, and trying to be ahead of the curve. And... When this happened, boy, it made me so mad because it ruined the Easter I'd worked on for six months. It ruined that relationship series I wanted to do right after Easter. All of the normal things that we think this works, a great Easter, a relationship series after it, pushing people into small groups, great events over the summer, church camp for kids, all those kind of things, you know, they all ceased. So it it was this disruptive time, especially for us planners of, Okay, so what do I do to, I mean, what really matters is, is the most, I think the soul searching I had to do was, what's the most important thing for me, that I execute my plan <laughs> or that I really pastor people? And so then it comes into, all right, well, how do I pastor people through this unprecedented time? What do they need? Do they need more content online? Do they need more home visits with masks, of course? Um, do we need to create more groups on Zoom, more outdoor gatherings? 
how do I do this? And then where I live in California, it was like the rules changed every day. So yeah. uh, it was really difficult to know what people really want. And then you had all the, all the division of, you know, people with the whole, is it masks or no masks, black lives versus blue lives, um, you know, Republican versus Democrat, all the craziness going on. It was like we're living through about four different pandemics at the same time. You had COVID, you had mental health, you had racial uh, injustice, you had the financial pandemic, uh, and then you could go on and on. So I think it was trying to find what is the baseline? You know, what is the ground I'm going to stand on uh, to execute this as best as I possibly can and, and then turn it off? And so we, we tried to quickly come up with some, some wins for our team, which was, all right, when this is all over, and it will end, we want our church to know we cared. So let's divide up the database and call everybody in the database and say, how can we pray for you? The second thing is we want our community to, to know that we cared. So who's at greatest need and, and risk at this time? Well, it's the kids that don't get lunch anymore because they're stuck at home. All right. So how can we meet that need? It's the elderly who are unable to get out. How can we meet that need? Let's double down on those things. And so at the end of this, um, our community knows we cared and our church knows that we cared. And that became kind of that North Star for us more than executing the calendar. Now, I know some of your listeners, boy, they are not an INTJ. They're an ENFP. And so they loved this time. Well, it's different. Let's go for it. And it was energizing for them. And they probably had to deal with, you know, being exhausted from that. Uh, but for those of us that are planners, this became a really difficult time. Yeah. Uh, are you wired to um, struggle with criticism or does that, <laughs> how, how does that affect you personally? It only affects me 24 okay. seven. Um, other than that, I'm good. Yeah, sure. I, I think, um, I think for me, and obviously one of the things I really resonated with some of your writings and our conversations, I take such criticism to heart because for years I assumed that was the words of Jesus. <laughs> okay. And especially as a pastor, it'd be one thing if I was a plumber and somebody said, boy, what your work really sucks. All right, whatever. I'm still a, you know, a Jesus follower and a husband and a dad and all that. But when it's all woven together and somebody looks at you and says, I'm leaving your church because you're not deep enough or because I like this other church better, um, or because you made me mad, uh, or because you stood up and spoke out against racism, and I'm a cop. There's something in me that says, oh, okay, are they right? Did I miss something? Uh, am, am I misusing my call, my opportunity, my role as a pastor? And I, I'm letting not just this person down, but I'm letting Jesus down. So uh, what's the old quote? Um, a, th a thousand compliments plus one criticism equals one criticism. Uh, and I think I, I've, I've really let those things linger. And I can still hear some of those words in my head. And uh, it, it's a painful thing. I'm gonna, let me try something, Rusty. I, I don't know if this will work or not, but I don't mind failing publicly. So uh, about what, what approximate size would your congregation be? I know um, Real Life's a larger church. Yeah, I think we're around... I mean, who knows during COVID, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. Let's, let's, let's use pre-COVID numbers before COVID okay. happened. Yeah, probably around 7,000 people. 
Yeah. Uh, how many roughly um, critics do you think you have? And I would describe the critics as not the one-time random critic, but the usual suspects group. How many of those would you think there are? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Samuel Chan, I, he said this in Leadership Pain, and, and you know this. Um, he said, no matter what your church is, I can tell you this, 10% of your people are devils. And so, and I asked him one time, you know, what, how'd you come up with 10%? And he said, well, it just seemed like a good round number. Uh, I, <laughs> I think he's probably right. So, you know, you say 700 people and, and they don't all email me, but they all, they all got a different idea of how things should be done or a, they're the person that goes, Hey, did you hear what they're doing? Or, uh, I haven't had a call yet. And uh, those kind of things that just kind of creep up on you. Yeah, they're gifted at finding each other too, I've noticed. Boy, they really are. They really yeah. are. It's like a, some kind of secret society. There's a handshake. We've got to right. figure out what that is. I know. Yeah. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of work lately with with leaders, not just pastors, on the inner critic mm. and really trying to help us, um, you know, believe the goodness of God over the inner critic. Uh, are you in a position now just to give us a taste of what your inner critic says to you? Yeah, Um my inner critic says, if you were only more like fill in the blank, then you would have a greater kingdom impact. And I think I've always had that. I've had that from when I was a kid, uh, from when I went to, uh, to Bible college and seminary. And when I was in young adult ministry, there was always somebody else out there that my people were looking at as, oh, they're really good. Uh, I was in young adult ministry in Kentucky dealing with uh, college-age kids, and they were great. But you know who was really great? Louis Giglio. Uh, okay. Um, I moved to California, and I, I live in a, a city that has the Master's University, which is highly connected with John MacArthur. And people would say, oh, yeah, you're good and funny and entertaining, but you know who's really deep and spiritual? John MacArthur. You know, you're, and let's just talk current events. Your church is closed right now because the government says so, but John MacArthur is open. Uh, you know, so <laughs> yes. you have all these, uh, you know, you fill in the blank of the person that you're supposed to be. Uh, yeah, your book was good, but you know who's a really great writer is so and so. And so there's always somebody else out there that you kind of compare yourself to, thinking, if I could only be more like them, uh, then I'd be able to, uh, well, be more liked. They wouldn't leave. People would appreciate me more. And we had disguised that as have greater kingdom impact. I, I always appreciate when veteran leaders are willing to op open up like you just did, because I think, I think the fallacy for younger leaders is that we all grow out of this. And I, I just don't think we grow out of it. I think we just learn to manage it and, and lower the voice. Well, that's a great point. And I, I, I had a conversation with a church consultant one time, and somehow we got off of just church consulting down into the inner workings. And he, he made a comment to me that I thought, boy, I got to hang on to that. And I'm glad I've remembered it. He said, you know what? You just got to make peace with the monsters under the bed because they'll always be there. And, and for some of us, it's you know, that inner wound of what your dad said to you or your coach said to you, or you got cut, you know, I mean, isn't that interesting? And I mean, we're off topic here, but Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time at his hall of fame speech brought the kid that got picked for the basketball team instead of him. It was like that inner wound never healed. So if six championships and six MVPs are not enough, 
what will be enough. And so you're right. It really is making peace with those monsters. They're always going to be there. But what's the louder voice? Learning to let the, the love of Jesus kind of overwhelm you. And I sat in a counselor's office probably seven years ago, and he looked at me and he said, your problem is, is you don't believe Jesus loves you. And thus, you don't love Jesus. Yeah. So what are you talking about? And he said, well, we love him because he first loved us, and you don't believe he loves you. And he was right. I really believe Jesus loved other people. I just didn't believe he loved me because yeah. I hadn't done enough yet. And I believe grace was for everybody else, but just not me. And that gets into kind of a deeper kind of father wound we can talk about later in the gauntlet. But um, <laughs> I, I think for me, it was just this realization even if I do nothing else, he's already impressed with me. He's already, he already loves me. And I, and I need to have a daily moment of remembering that in order to deal with that, the monsters under the bed. Several years ago, I heard Father Gregory Boyle, um, Homeboy Industries down the road from you guys. He would say to these, these young men and women in gangs, he would say, you are exactly what God had in mind when he made you. And when I first heard that, I got so bothered, like, no, they're not exactly, they've murdered somebody or that, you know, and, and that was on my own inner critic. Like the, the idea that in this case, it's easy. I'm like you, Rusty, easy for me to proclaim grace, harder to receive it. But the idea that Rusty George is exactly what God had in mind as a human being and for, for real life and so on. And then living into that is, um, that's where it, it takes faith. I, I, I think when you talked about, you, you know, I, I don't love God because I don't receive God's love. I think you've actually put the finger on one of the number one secret battles of pastors is we can proclaim the love of God and make people cry. Like we can do it so eloquently. It, interesting, since my book came out, I'm, I'm now getting more and more what I call backstage conversations with pastors. Mm -hmm where they, they struggle to believe it. I love that you just enunciated that. Well, and I think, Steve, to your point, um, we're, we're inundated with these stories of pastors who have moral failings. And those are the public ones. We don't even hear about the, the private ones, right? Yeah. Well, I don't think it's because that guy woke up one day and said, I want to blow up my ministry. Or, you know what, I'm just a real horn dog and I'm going to go find anybody I can What's the deeper issue going on? And it's this, this internal craving for acceptance and love. And even though we're really good at proclaiming it to others, but we are not good at receiving it because there's something inside of us that says, once you receive it, you're going to lose your edge or you're going to stop believing that you need to work a little harder or do a little bit more. Or if you do that, then, then you're going to, you're going to somehow miss out on what, what God has in store for you. And boy, that's a wound that, man, that's deep. Yeah. Yeah. You, you brought up Michael Jordan. I'm, I'm going to blame you because you're the one that got us off topic here. But um, I, I found his, um, I found his petulance to be unbelievable mm -hmm. at that Hall of Fame speech, flying people in so he can sit him on the front row and tell them off. And, and of course the, the last dance, mm -hmm. all his teammates, you know, their whole theme was, like I, what I heard from the last dance is like, look, it was a pleasure to play with him. Like just honestly, the idea that we got to be in the circle of greatness. But what they also said is he'll invent a grudge just so he can win. All that I want to set up to say, have you watched Dennis Rodman's Hall of Fame speech? Uh, I, you know what? I just saw his entrance. I never watched his speech. It's, it's, uh, I'll just, 
again, we're off topic here, but I'll just say for our listeners, it is worth Googling Jordan's Hall of Fame speech and watching it and then go ahead and watch Dennis Rodman's and the night and day different postures of these two men. Mm. And of course, Jordan being you know recognized as a great man and Rodman's always been recognized as kind of a hot mess who could really rebound. But mm. you see Rodman's heart, just to spoil it a little bit, he basically flew in the four men who stepped in as the father figure in his life because his father abandoned him. And he brought him up on stage and thanked them one by one for, and, and very publicly said, I've let you all down. You know, every one of you, I've not been the man I should be. Uh, mom, he's, his mom's, mom, I've let you down. Wife, I've let you down. Like it was quite a overt a blubbering of emotion, but just his humility and his confession was, for me, it was very powerful. Wow. No, I've, I've got to look at that. And I, and I, I'm love that we're on this topic because I think there's so much to learn, but last dance was, was one of the best things that came out of COVID. Right. But yeah, that's the, right. uh, yeah. the, the scene that I remember, um, that I was just really taken by was when Jordan started tearing up at the thought that his teammates didn't understand you know, kind of what he lived with and his just desire to win. And that's all he really wanted. And, uh, and the fact that he didn't get it, I mean, he's just kind of, he's got a different North star than the rest of the world and it made him great, but it also made him really lonely. And the other guys are like, man, it was fun to be on the train, but, uh, there was something else I was headed towards. And I thought it was just so so compelling. I mean, I know people that don't even care about sports that loved watching watch the last dance. It was great. Yeah. All right. So, so you open the door to loneliness, Rusty. One of my other favorite topics I always want to ask lead pastors about when you guys are on the show is friendship. A couple of episodes ago, I brought on Sean Palmer and Sean's actually done a lot of thinking about ministry and friendship. I, I just happen to know because you're friends with my former boss, Gene Apple. Um, a fine human being yeah, and, he's and the best. man, he was, oh, I learned so much from Gene. And, and, uh, while I'm giving shout outs, you know, I also worked under Judd Wilhite at Central Christian and learned so much from Judd, but I, I know that you and Gene, and I don't know all the crew in your friendship, but you have some rich friendships there in Southern California. Um, what do you do to cultivate friendship in ministry? We share pain <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, Part of my personality is, is I divert to humor quite often. Uh, in some ways, it's it's whimsome, winsome, but in other ways, it's just you know deflecting. But I learned early on that we laugh a lot because we cry a lot, and so I, I've developed um, kind of a uh, what we we call ourselves the Fab Five, and uh, it's it's four other guys who are in similar age, similar roles of leadership, um, all lead pastors. That the moment we screw up. We text each other and we say, oh, you won't believe what I said from stage. You won't believe what I did or whatever. So we can laugh about it and realize it's okay. Uh, we, were, it's, we, we make a point to have a Zoom call uh, once a month and laugh and tell success stories, but mainly pain stories. And usually there's one of us that needs the pep talk from the other four of us. And yesterday yeah. it was one guy that just needed it. And we, we expressed that. And so that's, that's where I share a lot of it. Then I have kind of a tribe of mentors, and um, that's the Gene Apples, the Mike Bros, the Larry Osborns, um, that really uh, have become such just trusted voices. And the reason I trust those guys is because they share their pain too. Uh, they don't just tell me, well, here's what I do, or here's what I have done. 
Um, but it's it's really sharing pain. I, I think that's been one of the really good things through this COVID season is it's not like we could call up Gene Apple and say, hey, what'd you do during the last pandemic? Um, he's not that old to have been around for the Spanish yeah. flu. So, you know, we're all kind <laughs> yeah, of in the right. same boat of, hey, how do we do this? So we're all kind of, it's in a lab together and we're all kind of grieving at the same time. We're dealing with the same pain. And I think pastors need to know that when they feel like they're the only ones that's dealing with a cop that's mad because you spoke out against racism or a family in your church that's African-American that's mad because you honored first responders or because you insisted on having masks and people think, well, now, uh, you know, you're a Democrat and you're for abortion. Um, you know, you, you just it boggles your mind. And you can't figure out why lifetime friends are leaving your church or are mad at you or blowing you up on social media. You need to know you're not alone. And I have enough of these circles to know that I'm not alone. But I sat with a pastor over lunch here in town a week ago, and he's telling me all of his pain. And I told him some of the people that I've talked to that have that, and I've had that. And he looked at me and he said, I thought I was the only one. And my heart yeah. broke for him because we're all dealing with this. But if you don't have other people, and nobody gets it like a lead pastor, if you don't have other people you can share some of those pains and losses with, you will begin to think it's just you and you'll quit. Uh, I love that. I I, I want to make sure people are hearing, like, uh, w- when lead pastors get together and chat about this, it's not a pity party. And also, we don't think we're the only ones that struggle. When, so what Rusty's saying when he says no one gets it, he doesn't mean there's no other vocation that doesn't understand challenge. But every vocation has its own unique challenges. Uh, for example, I don't envy school principals. Mm. I, I can't fathom how difficult that role is. Medical professionals in intensive care wards. But what Rusty's saying is one of the unique challenges of lead pastorship, lead pastoring is loneliness and isolationism. And um, I hope people are hearing how intentional he is about reaching out for help and to help. Um, that, that's my story too, Rusty. Just, it took a lot of time. It felt like dating. When I first came to this city, cold calling people, going on a first date to figure out, is this the kind of lead pastor I think I can share my heart with? And then at the end of the coffee or the lunch, hey, do you want to you want to see me again? Like it really is, but um, it, it's vulnerable. But man, I thank God for it because now 15 years later, I have these deep, rich, life-giving friendships. And my experience is yours too. We One of us needs help most of the time and it's almost always shifts who it is. And none of us have graduated from needing to reach out and ask for help. So I love, I love what you just yeah, said. So true. I, I think there's, you know, we, we learn a lot, obviously from the new Testament and how they dealt with their relationships, but Paul always traveling with other people that he, he could share that with. And that's one of the reasons he got so mad at John Mark because he bailed on him. Uh, I resonate with Paul on that, man. You leave me once way we're done. But then towards the end of his life, you know, he says, eh, bring John Mark back. I'm ready. You know, I think there's such tremendous wisdom in that leadership there of, you know, kind of, we, we got to have other people with us and we're not in this alone. And, um, years ago, I, I wrote a book about just my own journey through that because I'm an introvert and I thrive on being alone. And when the pandemic started, I thought, man, this is a dream, you know, <laughs> I'm stuck yeah. at home with books and coffee and writing messages for online. Fantastic. Um, but I, I learned quickly just this, uh, this, this pain of sometimes being in it alone and, and I share the story in the book, um, Better Together, about 
I, I was in a dark state right after our church moved in the building and had tr- such tremendous success. And then people who I thought were lifers bailed because it became a church they didn't want to be a part of anymore because it was too big and various things. And I did all the inner work. You know, I, I did all the 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 personality studies and um, I went to counselors and all this stuff. And I woke up one day and I thought, boy, I've learned a lot about me, but I've lost me. Hmm. And I, I, it's like what Jesus says, when you look for yourself, you lose yourself. And so I sat down for lunch with a, a pastor out of Chicago, Tim Harlow, who's just an amazing guy. And he's probably about 10, 12 years, my senior. And he's been doing this a lot longer than I have. And I just shared with him my pain of losing some good friends and ministry that left our church. And he shared with me this horrific story of a family that they did life with for years, vacation together, Sunday afternoon together. And then one day out of the blue, they just said, no, we're out. We don't like the way you leave this church and we're done. And it not only lost a family in their church, but lost friends as well. I said, well, you know, why, why do you think that happened? He said, I don't know, but if it encourages you, it was worth it. Wow. I thought, wow. And talk, talk about taking one for the team, you know, and he was right. That story encouraged me so much to know that it's not just me. It's not because of me. And a lot of times those people have other stuff going on. And the journey I went through was realizing, even though I'm an introvert, I desperately need people. It may not be the same way an extrovert does, um, but no matter what role you lead in, uh, some of those you know positions you just mentioned, we all have to have a, um, as you know, Reagan used to call it, the kitchen cabinet, yeah. the people that he's closest to that he could really rely on. We need that. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. Um, my wife recently became a therapist. She was a school teacher for years. She went back to grad school. I'm really proud of her. Like we've got teenage kids in there. She is in grad school kicking it out. And it's interesting. I assume when she graduated that she would take clients from our church people because we refer people to therapy all the time. And with very, very rare exception, because she's the pastor's wife, she won't do it. She won't take clients from our church. And it's because of the very strict rule of one hat at a time, one type of relationship at a time with people. So if you're their therapist, you're not their friend, you're not their pastor, you know. Mm. And and I think, I think when pastors get together like we are and we talk about friendship, I think it's really cathartic that we talk about how friendship's hard for us. I think it's also cathartic for us to recognize how hard it is for our church friends. Like what, what I've, I've often gone into victim mode where I'm like, well, no one else's friends criticize their job. You know, I get, you know, but then I put the other hat on and say, well, wait a minute. No one else gets up every week and tells them how to live their life in a monologue. None of their other friends do that. And, and when I walk into my church friend's house, they don't know if I'm walking in as a friend or to recruit, you know? So it's, it's just to be mindful, I think, of the extra hats we wear in these relationships. And I know some of the pain I've had in leadership is realizing that good people in my church, our friendship isn't working because I'm also their leader mm-hmm. and their pastor. And it's not about them and it's not about me as people. If I was not their pastor, we would probably be very good friends. Mm-hmm. But I can't keep friendship with you because you really think you know how to preach better and it hurts, you know, that kind of right. stuff. So it's, it's an interesting study, friendship and ministry. It, it really is. And it, it's even, it's so different than just being a CEO or a school teacher because you do, you know, you just go home. But in this case, sometimes, you know, you share life, you're in Christian community with them, you're maybe in a small group with them, you walk them through their darkest days 
And then, oh, by the way, you're also their, their pastor, their leader, prophet, priest, and king, whatever it is. It's just, it's a weird dynamic. Yeah. And sometimes your best friendships are found outside of that dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let me ask this one question then. I'd love to just get a quick take on your book on prayer because I think it's yeah. just such a practical, helpful tool. One of the things I'm beating the drum on right now is when I was a hospital chaplain, we learned that the emergency room, it doesn't so much create a condition in a family, it reveals it. Yeah. So the loved one comes in on the gurney. They've been in the car wreck, but two minutes later, the family shows up and whatever condition that family was in before the accident is exposed rather than created. And I'm trying to tell as many pastors as I can, 2020 did not reveal the condition of your soul. It did not create it. It exposed it. Um, what are just a couple of really helpful soul care practices that you've done? So you mentioned cooking and working with your hands. I'd just love to hear a couple more before we move on. Well, first of all, I'm writing that down because that sounds like a sermon series to me. It didn't create it. It revealed it. Yeah. That's so good. Uh, and you're exactly right. I mean, we often talk about ministries of vice and it squeezes whatever's in the toothpaste tube out of it. And uh, I think COVID was a big vice for all of us. It just squeezed whatever was in us out of us. Um, and, and I think uh, soul care, uh, well, we've talked about it a whole lot more over the past few years than we ever have. And I think a lot of it has to do with the mental health crisis we find ourselves in. Uh, I, I have a, a few books that I reread every year, which has been helpful for me. Uh, some, you know, Henry Nowen stuff, uh, so cathartic. And but the book Soul Keeping, Rusty, if you wouldn't mind, yeah, sorry, yeah. You, I just interrupted as you were. No, that's fine. I, I would go with In the Name of Jesus. Um, oh, it's so great and oh. such an easy read yeah. and it should be read often. Um, the the uh, Genesee Diary, um, which is really kind of his first uh, um, trek at Archie before he decided to move there, gets into a lot of the soul issues he was dealing with. Um, I love those two. I'm looking over here at my bookshelf. Um, uh, Life Without Lack by Dallas Willard, uh, which was written after his death. It was a collection of Sunday school lessons on uh, Psalm 23. It's brilliant. And Soul Keeping by John Ortberg um, is a reread every year for me because of just that idea of soul keeping. So there's, there's part of that. There's the other part of, you know, obviously pastors have always been told, got to have a daily quiet time, daily quiet time and all that. I think for me, it's how do I incorporate this into my day? Um, I've, I've done the whole, let's read through the Bible in a year. And, you know, after a few months, you're just logging pages, trying to get it done. Uh, I find what helps better is to memorize one verse a week and kind of bring that up throughout the day over and over and over again. I used a practice I heard from a podcast one time where you just use the alphabet, come up with a verse for each letter of the alphabet. Um, and so I can kind of recall that throughout the day. Uh, and another is a great app called uh, PrayMinder, uh, which you put your prayer request into, and then it will remind you of it throughout the day. Wow. It just sends you a little alert. Hey, pray for Steve today. Uh, pray for the, the building campaign. Pray for your neighbor today. And so you don't have to do the, the mental gymnastics of, oh, I should go back to my prayer list. It does it for you. Wow. Um, there's a great app out there called Pause uh, from John Eldridge, um, which gives you just guided meditations. So I've tried to incorporate it throughout the day rather than just one time or one day of solitude, which I highly recommend. But, you know, the other thing that we've been talking about for years and now is needed more than ever is just have a, a clear finish line for the week. 
I, I know because we do a Thursday night service. Um, that's our first service for the weekend. Yeah, so, too. we do that yeah, as well. It's a, you know, it's a sprint towards Thursday, but when Thursday night's over with and I drive home, boy, it is just such uh, a freeing moment. Cause I know the next two days barring, you know, some kind of a uh, funeral or wedding or something like that, it's I'm done. And I'm going to do something else besides ministry. And I'm not going to read anything. I'm going to read a sports book. I'm going to watch The Last Dance. I'm going to watch basketball. Um, I'm going to do something else. And then I'm recharged and ready for Sunday. And I've already practiced the message once, which is great, as you know. So I think some of those soul care things are really, really helpful. Awesome. All right. You've, you've written a number of books. Your latest one is After Amen, What to Do When You're Waiting on God. Just give us a little on what what prompted you to write this? What prompted me to write this was my own struggle with this. And uh, for many of us, we stand in the lobby on a Sunday after church and we hear people come up to us and express their deepest pain. And we, we look at them and say, well, let's pray about it. And they look back at us and as, you know, almost bitter. And they say, oh, I have prayed, but it didn't work. And inside that is a question of what, what did I do wrong? Did I not stand up? Did I not lay down? Did I not have enough passion? Am I not perfect enough? Could you pray for me? Because you might get through and I won't. You know, and then there's all this, am I supposed to do something now? And I deal with a lot of people from a Catholic background. And so their mentality is I should, you know, have a few more Hail Marys or Our Fathers or use the rosary beads or use a saint. And so it got me thinking because I have my own prayer requests that went unanswered. And I wonder, well, what am I supposed to do? So I went back and just looked at the life of Jesus. And I noticed all these people would come up to Jesus with their, their questions. And these were, these were prayers. Would you heal me? Would you heal my son? Yeah. Uh, would you give me sight? Would you fix this or whatever it was? And Jesus had very interesting responses for them. They weren't always yes or no or later. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, but go show yourself to the priest and the miracle will meet you on the way. Or fill up these six jars of water, and when it's all done, we'll see the miracle. Or go wash your eyes in, you know, in the river, which this is the guy that Jesus spits on. Isn't that great? Would you like to be the guy in heaven? You could say, Jesus, you know, <laughs> yeah. spit on me. Um, the, it was very fascinating to see what Jesus told people to do. And it really kind of brought to light these, as I talk about in the book, these seven things to do while waiting on God. Things like, you know what, you got to align with the why. What is what is God's why and what he's trying to do? You got to yield to the how. Maybe he's going to do it, but he's going to be do, he's going to do it differently than you thought. Uh, sometimes you just got to do the next right thing. You don't, you know, you don't see the the miracle until later. Sometimes you, God's waiting for you to be really honest. Why do you really want this? Let's get down to the really last 10% of what you're asking for. Uh, sometimes it's um you know, being comfortable in the, in the no and accepting a no from God. And how did Jesus do that? And how did Jesus wait? Uh, so we try to get into a lot of that. We just completed a seven week series at our church through the book. And boy, I've just found it, it to be healing for people. Like it was healing for me to do the study to figure out, oh, okay. It's not that I did it wrong. It's that God had something to teach me along the way. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I, I think, I've gotten into some trouble uh, with my anxiety work by telling people that sometimes, sometimes prayer makes it worse. You know, depending on our posture, like we, 
of course, sometimes prayer helps. I'm not, people I think don't hear what I'm saying, but when we're in the grip of anxiety, we then anxiously try to manipulate prayer to do something. And that's when it, we get in a spin cycle. So I love that. Any, any time we can release to God and then take action, I think it always helps the human. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think we, we treat prayer like an Advil, it's supposed to take away our pain right away. And oftentimes it's more like a vitamin that can be preventative or it's like chemo <laughs> that just wrecks your world for a while. You know, yeah. the old joke is never pray for patience because God will give you things to be patient with. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of it is re-understanding what prayer is, that it really is about this relationship. And to be honest, Steve, I, I felt like the last two chapters, and you're an author, so you get this. Sometimes you write a chapter and you go, yeah, okay, publisher will be fine. Uh, but then there's times you write it and you go, boy, that felt like my life's work. Yeah. And I felt like the last two chapters of this book were like the last 49 years of my life were leading up to that understanding of how Jesus got a no from God. Now, picture this. If you've been to Israel, you know this. But the Garden of Gethsemane is not far from the city of Jerusalem. And you can sit on the Garden of Gethsemane and look and see inside the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is praying for God to change his mind about how this is going to go down while looking across the Kidron Valley into the city of Jerusalem, seeing God's no, as he sees the soldiers gather to come get him. Man, that's just overwhelming to me. And to know that, that Jesus trusted his father enough to go with that answer, even if it wasn't the answer he wanted. And I felt like I've, I learned so much about how Jesus dealt with a no and even in the not yet um, in trusting his father. And sometimes it's not about having faith in Jesus, it's having the faith of Jesus to know that we can trust him through that. So, um, as is the case with many of my guests, um, the much feared and anticipated gauntlet is now upon us. And um, <laughs> you've already tried to crawl away once or twice, but here you are facing it like a man. So, question number one. Uh, the, the premise of this question is that we carry our family of origin into every encounter, or sometimes they carry us. Uh, so, to that end, what would be one trait that really helps you as a leader from your family of origin? And what would be one trait that gets in the way? It's the same thing. And I'll, I'll tell you what it is. When I was a kid, my dad had a saying. He would give me a job to do. And he would look at me and he'd say, if you do it right the first time, you won't have to do it again. And he would laugh and laugh and laugh. I think that was so funny. And then he would come and he'd inspect the job, whether it was vacuuming out the car or taking out the trash or cleaning up, whatever. And he'd point out what was wrong. And then he'd say, son, if you do it right the first time, you won't have to do it again. And so I'd do it again. And you know, then eventually I'd get the good job. That has made me the success and the train wreck that I am today. <laughs> because the success is, boy, I've got a tremendous work ethic. And I'll go over that message or that manuscript more times than it needs to be gone over. 
But when I walk off the stage or when I get done with the blog or when I walk out of somebody's home, I am my worst critic thinking, boy, I wish I would have done that better or I could have done that better. And I probably had to do that again because if I did it right the first time, I wouldn't have to do it again. And I appreciate what my dad was trying to do. And I think at some point in all of our lives, we just, we stop expecting our parents to have done something better. We just appreciate they did the best they could. Yeah. And my dad had no father figure. He grew up on the streets of Colorado Springs, right down the street from you. There are literally things in place there in Colorado Springs that are there because my dad uh, vandalized them or did various things. And so they had to build various safety structures in the Garden of the Gods or around various monuments. It's, I can tell you that another time. But here's a guy that knew nothing, went through a failed marriage, and then in his second marriage with my mom, you know, tried to do the best he could. We grew up in the church at the same pace. And so for him to say that was his work ethic from the Navy and from being a kid on his own. But it created an inner wound for my sister and I that we've had to kind of unpack. And so it becomes the, the greatest thing I bring with me, but also the most difficult thing as well. Oh, what a great answer. Yeah. Would you be willing to tell us about a recent mistake you've made? And ideally, it is some kind of public mistake. And then how do you recover when you make a mistake? I'll, I'll tell you a couple. One, one happened during COVID, and I think a lot of pastors have dealt with this. It's the constant change in direction. And so this was a, a mistake with our, with our leadership team. I'd come in with the, here's where we're going, here's what we're going to do. And then it, because of either racial crisis, social unrest, government decisions, our governor constantly changing his mind, uh, oh, we got to change that. I said we were going to be inside by this day. We can't meet inside. I said we were going to stay outside. You know what? We're going to go inside. Um, it was just a constant misdirection. And I know I've just exhausted our team. And, and I had to go to them recently and say, I'm so sorry. Right now it's December as we're recording this. And so it's getting ready for Christmas Eve. And are we going to be inside, outside, just online? And I feel like it's been a constant uh, change. And so what I had to do, especially because I've had six months of being back and forth, is when it came to December, I just went to our team and I said, all right, here's Here's the information I have. Here's the boundaries we have to play within. You guys make the decision. So it's a little bit like that scene from Apollo 13 where the guys are, are literally suffocating up in space. And down on Earth, a scientist walks into a room with a, with a box. You know the scene of, yeah. the, of the pieces they have in the ship. And he says, we got to solve their air crisis using these pieces. And he drops all these on a table. That's clear boundaries and clear direction. And I feel like that's a lot of leadership right there. Um, the other part of leadership is the movie Inception, where you're planting ideas in people's minds, hoping that they come along with you, right? Those two movies, I think, speak a lot about leadership. But for our team, it was to go to them and say, all right, here's the boundaries. You guys figure it out. Well, it gave them clarity, but it also gave them tremendous license to figure out what works best. And then for a, as a leader, just to go back and say, I got to trust my team on this one. That, that was big. Uh, a second one, we had a staff suicide a few years ago. And that was definitely one of the darkest times of my leadership. But it was the result of this guy who had some mental health issues that he was not taking care of. And he'd also had an affair. And the, the affair was like this, you know, accelerator for everything else. 
And so he took his life. He didn't want to deal with it. When I went to our church, uh, because there were so many other factors and there were families involved and they didn't all know the details and he never really truly confessed to the affair and his wife sitting out there and uh, this other woman, uh, her family sitting out there. All I did was talk about the mental anxiety, mental health issues. And that was, you know, on the advice of counsel who said, listen, it's not your story to tell. He never confessed to it. Let's don't drag his family through the mud. Let's just talk about the mental health issues. Wish I could have done that differently. Um, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course. I wish I would have gotten into some of that because it wasn't just mental health. And I know I lost credibility with some of our team members because they knew, but they knew that I was advised not to say. And sometimes what you uh, do that you think will be the best for everybody ends up coming back to bite you. Uh, yeah, those are two really poignant examples. On, on that second one, I think it's so hard for a leader in an unprecedented situation, which that's what that sounds like to me, is I'm hearing what you had to deal with. You'd never dealt with that before. Feels like we often give ourselves a C minus. Yeah. Uh, when we, if you did it again, you'd probably get a B minus, which is probably an A actually on the curve. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And uh, I don't. And there here it comes back to the whole: if you did it right the first time, you wouldn't have to do it again. I, I, yeah. I hope I don't have to do that again. But I, yeah. I learned a lot from that. And if people listening can learn from that, then hopefully they they can. The the first story you shared, um, I think I don't know who originated. This quote, I, th I think I first heard it from Craig Rochelle, but it's like, if you want to uh, raise a volunteer, you delegate a task. If you want to raise a leader, you delegate authority. You modeled a great mm. example of that. I, I've stolen that quote and adjusted it to say, if you want to raise a leader, you delegate anxiety. Mm. What, whatever decision makes you anxious, get others to carry the anxiety of the decision, not to inflict it on them because that's how you become a leader. So my poor team... <laughs> Uh, they, you know, what should we do? I'm like, well, you figure it out. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Welcome to leadership. I'll, <laughs> all I can promise you is I'll have your back. You know, when you take the hits, I'll be there. But you, I think you have to delegate anxiety if you're going to actually develop leaders and people have to learn to carry the weight of the unknown. So, oh, that's so good. Um, so, yeah, good. let's, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's try this one. This will be our final kind of, uh, invasive question. Then I think I've got one that'll hopefully be relaxing, but, Jeannie Duck says, in the absence of information, we all connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. <laughs> and so when you don't have enough information, particularly if it's a critic, like if somebody texts you and say, hey, Rusty, we need to meet. I've got some opinions about the church or whatever it is. What, what kinds of messages go through your head between that and what, you know, when you're filling in the gaps? I, I think, um, yeah, that's the worst phone call I can get or text. Hey, can we meet sometime? I need to talk to you. Oh, no, don't do that to me. Yeah, my team knows that they, they don't ever do that. It's the people in the church that do that that really, really bothers me. What goes through my head are all the previous experiences. You know, you're not enough. I trusted you. You failed me. I need more that you can't provide. You know, at the, at the end result of all of my counseling, I came away with these two things. My inner critic says, you are responsible. And you are lacking. So I, everything that comes to my mind from what that person could possibly say is, um, is that. And then it turns into they represent thousands. 
they're coming because they always come with others, right? Uh, some, yeah. some of us have been talking. A lot of us have been thinking, you know, and it's really not that many, but it, it's enough in my mind. And so in my mind, they come with, with, uh, with thousands and it's permanent and can never be changed. And part of that is just the school of hard knocks. I've never talked somebody into staying. I, I used to try. Now I just bless them and go with God. And I introduce them to their next lead pastor so I can kind of put the onus on them. Hey, you better get involved over there, right? Um, so I think for me, it's, it's running through that, that mentality. Now, here's one of the things that has helped me. And, and I, I got this from Ed Young Jr. He said, 99% of all problems in the church last two weeks because that's the longest people can go without thinking about themselves. <laughs> and he's right. I've noticed about, you know, every issue people get worked up about and they, they come to you in email and social media. I'm bitter about this. And there's a whole bunch of us give it two weeks because there'll be another thing they're bothered by. And they get back to their own problems and stop dealing with yours. Even the even the awful ones, you know, they just tend to go away in a couple weeks. So I have to give myself a little bit of grace there. Uh, one of my counselors told me, you get 30 minutes to be crazy. So, you know, let let the 30 minutes of, well, what if and what if and what if and what if go and then realize, all right, listen to what they have to say. They'll be over it in two weeks. If they leave, they don't leave God, they leave the church. And that's okay. Great. Okay, final question. As I've studied the nature of leadership anxiety, two forces that displace it every time is laughter and love. And so I would simply define love as, as uh, being seen when you feel seen by somebody, uh, whether it's by God or by a human. So when in your life do you feel most fully loved and fully seen? Uh, my wife and my two daughters. So I live with, with three women, right? They are able to talk nonstop at the same time and, and understand each other. It's just phenomenal to me. <laughs> you know, it's the whole men are waffles, women are spaghetti kind of thing, right? I, I get, when I speak, I get so bothered when they interrupt. And it's not that they're being mean, it's just the way they communicate. And it occurred to me, I feel most loved when I'm listened to. And I think this has been the most difficult thing for us as pastors through this pandemic is we don't have that weekly time where people listen to us for 30 minutes. Now, you can say they do online, but we know the stats. They're playing with the dog. They're making dinner. You know, they're <laughs> doing other things. But there, there's something, call it good or bad, but when I stand up on stage and nobody interrupts for 30 minutes, yeah, it's, it's gut-wrenching. But I, I can't underestimate the value of that adrenaline and the value of that. You just listen to me for 30 minutes without interrupting. I think we forget the value in that. And I think that's why a lot of us are really struggling during this time, because we haven't had that feeling of people listening to us rather than just telling us what to do. We're upset because we haven't done what they wanted us to do. So for me, when I feel most loved, it's when somebody actually listens to me. Uh, has a few follow-up questions to prove that they weren't just waiting to speak, and they, uh, you know, that they've heard what I've had to say, even if they don't agree. That's a fascinating answer. That's a in 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 the. I think I've asked this question a couple of hundred times now. That's the first of its kind. So I I love that mm. first time someone's answered that way. 
There is a hanging chad between us, Rusty. Before we wrap up, you're going to have to explain waffles and spaghetti. I've never heard that metaphor. <laughs> oh, you've not heard that? Mm-mm. Okay, so men's minds are like waffles. They have little squares. And we compartmentalize everything. And so we're able to turn things off. And that's why we can't multitask very well. It's just one thing at a time. And women are like spaghetti. It's just all, it's all inter, you know, intertwined. And so they, they can deal with multiple things at multiple times. And uh, men just can't compute. So I think it's an old comedy bit or it's a, uh, a scientific like TED Talk or something like that. So Awesome. Rusty George, thank you so much for your time. Uh, obviously, I think I think your heart has come through, and not just your heart, but what I'm hearing is an awful lot of wisdom that is the result of a lot of pain, but also in the words of the wonderful Frederick Beekner, mm. you have stewarded your pain well. That's what I'm hearing. So thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing with us. I thank really you, appreciate it. Thank you so much. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.